Hello, this is Jack Harity, and for the next hour, I'll be reading from the May 5th, 2023 issue of the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Heading, U.S. Job Growth Retains Vigor Despite Economic Worries. Subheading, Employers Added 253,000 Jobs in April, and Unemployment Fell to 3.4%, But the Labor Market's Strength Complicates the Fed's Inflation Fight by Lydia DePillis. The labor market is still defying gravity, for now. Employers added 253,000 jobs in April on a seasonally adjusted basis, the Labor Department reported Friday, in a departure from the cooling trend that had marked the first quarter and was expected to continue. The unemployment rate was 3.4%, down from 3.5% in March, and matched the level in January, which was the lowest since 1969. Wages also popped slightly, growing 4.4% over the past year. The higher-than-forecasted job gain complicates the Federal Reserve's potential shift toward a pause in interest rate increases. Jerome H. Powell, the Fed chair, said on Wednesday that the central bank might continue to raise rates if new data showed the economy wasn't slowing down enough to keep prices down. It's also an indication that the failure of three banks and the resulting pullback on lending, which is expected to hit smaller businesses particularly hard, hasn't yet hamstrung job creation. Quote, all these things are telling us it's not a hard stop. It's creating a headwind, but not a debilitating headwind, end quote, said Carl Riccadonna, the chief U.S. economist at BNP Paribas. Quote, a gradual downturn is happening but it sure is stubborn and persistent in the trend, end quote. Despite the strong showing in April, the labor market continues to gently descend from blistering highs. Downward revisions to previous two months meaningfully altered the spring employment picture, subtracting a total of 149,000 jobs. That brings the three-month average to 222,000 jobs, a clear slowdown from the 400,000 added on average in 2022. Most economists expect a more marked downshift later in the year. Job growth was broad-based, even if less than the eye-popping numbers of 2022, when the nation was rapidly digging out of a deep pandemic deficit. Leisure and hospitality added 31,000 jobs, down from a 73,000-job average over the past six months, but another step toward its high in early 2020. Even sectors that tend to be more sensitive to interest rates and had been leveling off in recent months, like construction, retail, and manufacturing, eked out gains. Quote, there seems to be an underlying strength to the labor market that has puzzled analysts and policymakers alike, end quote, said Corinne Kimbrough, the chief economist at LinkedIn. Quote, even when you see these pockets or cracks of weakness, they seem to reseal, end quote. The labor market has been uncommonly tight since early 2021, as employers struggle to reverse a sudden mass layoff and navigate huge shifts in the demand for goods and services. That has benefited groups that have historically been at a disadvantage in the labor market. Wages for those on the bottom of the pay scale rose faster than they have in decades. The unemployment rate for black Americans reached its lowest point on record in April at 4.7%, and the gap between the unemployment rates of white and black people was also the smallest ever measured. 
the share of people in their prime working years, 25 to 54 years old, participating in a labor market reached 83.3%, matching a level not seen since 2008. That rise has been powered by prime-aged women, who are participating at a rate never seen before, at 77.5%. In recent months, that exceptional mismatch between the supply and demand for workers has been coming into balance. Job postings, which had reached nearly double the number of available workers, tumbled in the first quarter. According to the job search website Indeed, which has more finely grained data, listed positions in marketing and human relations, those most correlated with a company's growth plans, are down 43% and 45% over the year, respectively. At the same time, a rebound in immigration eased labor shortages, especially in fields like leisure and hospitality and healthcare, allowing those to continue to grow quickly. And declines in sectors that had surged during the pandemic, such as transportation and warehousing, may have propelled more people into other fields with lots of openings for jobs that don't require college degrees, like hotels and restaurants. The outflow from blue-chip internet companies like Google and Meta has been a particular boon for other industries that had been desperate for people with digital skills. United Airlines, which plans to hire 15,000 people this year, said this week that it had already picked up 120 people laid off by major tech employers. That's why the upheaval in Silicon Valley, kicked off by a swift increase in borrowing costs that dried up venture capital, largely hasn't derailed those with the relative good fortune of losing jobs while the economy is still robust. Katie Lee, a 26-year-old software engineer in Palo Alto, California, was offered a job at a health technology company in late 2022. But after she'd left her former job and before she could start the new one, the company rescinded the offer, saying that a few contracts had been paused and that it wasn't sure it could sustain the position. In a panic, she started applying elsewhere, sending out 200 applications over a few months. That effort yielded three new offers, and Ms. Lee picked one she thought had a compelling mission, serving people on Medicaid. She started in March, making 71% of her old salary, but like many of her friends who've lost positions lately, she is happy to be reemployed and have health insurance. Quote, most people take slightly lower salaries, but compared to the normal person, they're still super high, end quote, Ms. Lee said. Quote, I think I was recognizing that other things are more important than career, end quote. Given the labor market's surprising durability, most economic forecasters reason that the Federal Reserve's 10 successive interest rate increases have yet to fully filter through the economy. As they do, the likelihood of staffing reductions goes up, but the distribution might look different than it has in recessions past. The conference board recently published an index assessing the risk of job loss in different parts of the economy. Those with the most acute labor shortages, such as healthcare and local government, are at comparatively low risk. Those that thrive on low borrowing costs, such as construction, continue to face higher risk. Quote, we expect a more negative and profound effect of interest rates on the labor market in the second half of the year, end quote, said Frank Steemers, a senior economist at the conference board noting that recent banking turmoil has also probably not translated into payrolls. Quote, 
if there's anything that would make you update your forecast to make it a deeper recession, end quote, he said, quote, definitely this would be it, end quote. For now, though, most employers are taking a cautious approach rather than intentionally downsizing. Many are first shedding contract workers. Employment through temporary help services has fallen for the past year. Aaron Doring is the Human Resources Director for TAL Holdings, a collection of hardware and building supply stores in the Pacific Northwest that employs about 650 people. The company grew rapidly in 2021 and 2022 as more people moved to the small towns where its stores are. But that slowed over the winter and early spring as higher borrowing costs and heavy snowfall hindered home building and remodeling. The company hasn't laid anyone off, but it is thinking about reducing hours and shrinking by attrition. That reflects a general plateau in its retail category, which jumped in 2020, but has since receded. Ms. Doring also said she had seen a higher volume of better qualified applicants for the jobs that are open. Quote, we are definitely being more strategic about the positions we're hiring for, really keeping a closer eye on. Quote, do we really need to backfill this position, end quote, Ms. Doring said. Quote, should we leave this position open at the moment and reconsider it at a later date, end quote. Heading, Walensky to resign as CDC director. Subheading, in an announcement on Friday, the head of the beleaguered agency said she would step down in June. Quote, we made this world a safer place, end quote, she said. By Apuvri Matavili. Dr. Rochelle Walensky, the director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, will step down from her position on June 30th, she announced on Friday, capping a tumultuous tenure as the nation's leading public health agency as it struggled to rein in the COVID-19 pandemic, the greatest threat to American well-being in decades. Quote, she marshaled our finest scientists and public health experts to turn the tide on the urgent crises we've faced, end quote. President Biden said in a statement after the announcement, quote, Dr. Walensky leaves CDC a stronger institution, better positioned to confront health threats and protect Americans, end quote. In an agency-wide meeting, Dr. Walensky admitted to having mixed emotions about her decision and broke down in tears, according to people on a conference call with her, quote, I took on this role with the goal of leaving behind the dark days of the pandemic and moving the CDC and public health into a much better and more trusted place, end quote, she said in a subsequent email to agency staff. During her tenure, Dr. Walensky noted, the agency administered more than 670 million COVID vaccine doses and provided guidance on immunization, social distancing, and masking that, quote, protected the country and the world from the greatest infectious disease threat we have seen in over 100 years, end quote. Her announcement came on the heels of the agency's disclosure that it would dramatically scale back its surveillance of COVID. The Biden administration plans to end the public health emergency on May 11th. Dr. Walensky did not respond to a request for comment. It was not immediately clear who would lead the CDC after Dr. Walensky's departure. Public health experts said the news came as a surprise, and some expressed disappointment in her decision. Quote, I think it is a loss for the CDC and for the nation, end quote, said Dr. Megan Ranney, the deputy dean for Brown University's School of Public Health. Quote, 
I know that it has not been easy, not just because of COVID, but because of the politicization of science. With her resignation, Dr. Walensky joins the ranks of many other public health officials who left their jobs after the pandemic began, many of them because of harassment from the public. Dr. Rani said she received hate mail and personal attacks, but what she has experienced is, quote, only the tip of the iceberg, end quote, compared with how Dr. Walensky has been treated. A person familiar with Dr. Walensky's thinking said that she had wearied of a barrage of harassment and long commutes between the CDC's offices in Atlanta and her home in Massachusetts. The director was upset by the agency's relations with the White House and did not expect the announcement of the end of the public health emergency, the person said. Born Rochelle Bursoff, Dr. Walensky grew up in Potomac, Maryland, in a family of respected scientists. She trained in medicine at Johns Hopkins University and, in 2001, joined the faculty at Harvard, where she developed a reputation as a rigorous researcher and a generous mentor. Before her tenure as CDC director, Dr. Walensky led the Infectious Diseases Division at Massachusetts General Hospital, where she saw the pandemic's devastation firsthand. She was noted for her work on healthcare policy, particularly in HIV. But with little experience working in government and leading large institutions, Dr. Walensky was an unexpected choice to guide an agency with a staff of about 11,000 people. Dr. Walensky took the helm of the beleaguered agency in January 2021. She had a near impossible task ahead of her, restoring the reputation of the once storied CDC when public health in the agency, and science more broadly, had reached new lows. The CDC had been pilloried since the start of the pandemic for missteps in testing, changing advice on masking, and antiquated surveillance and data systems. Trump administration officials hectored the agency's leaders and meddled with or ignored its research reports, undermining the morale of scientists even as the crisis ballooned. Dr. Anthony S. Fauci, the nation's leading advisor on COVID until late last year, told the New York Times in 2021 that he had full faith in Dr. Walensky's ability to turn the CDC around. Quote, by the end of one year, everybody is going to be raving about her, end quote. He said at the time, quote, I guarantee it. But the pandemic proved to be rough ground even for someone as respected and well-liked as Dr. Walensky. She was roundly criticized by experts for advising people to stop wearing their face masks just weeks before the Delta variant of the coronavirus pummeled the nation. And after shortening isolation requirements, even as the Omicron variant brought the country to a standstill, she was accused of letting commercial interests outweigh scientific caution. Republicans in Congress repeatedly asked for her resignation and painted the agency as a failed institution in hearings on the pandemic. But some experts felt Dr. Walensky had done her best with an impossible hand. Quote, Dr. Walensky landed in this role during the height of COVID and gave it her all, end quote, said Dr. Tom Inglesby, who worked with her closely when he served as the White House's testing coordinator last year. Quote, she has been working hard to change CDC for the better, to evolve its structures and organization into one that can deal with the crises of the future. She will be sorely missed. End quote. Dr. Daniel Pollock, who led COVID surveillance for a few months in 2020 and retired in 2021 after 37 years at the agency, said, quote, 
This is a sad day for Rochelle Walensky and for CDC. So much is at stake as CDC seeks to reorganize and modernize, end quote. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Quote, the timing of this leadership transition is very problematic, end quote, he said. Quote, I worked at CDC under 10 different directors, and when they leave abruptly, for whatever reason, the ripple effects take a big toll, end quote. Despite the controversy, Dr. Walensky's email to staff on Friday suggested that she believed she had improved the agency's standing. Quote, we collectively moved CDC forward, reorganizing the agency and embarking on the necessary work to orient the enterprise toward public health action and foster accountability, timeliness, and transparency in our work, end quote, she said. Dr. Walensky acknowledged the agency's failings last year and promised to reorganize it, transforming its ability to respond quickly to public health crises. Some organizational changes have been announced, but it is unclear whether any of them have made a material difference in the CDC's work. Under her leadership, Dr. Walensky said in her email to staff members, the agency bolstered its public health infrastructure and secured hundreds of millions of dollars to modernize the country's data infrastructure. She also declared racism a serious public health threat, she noted, and led the agency in its efforts to contain a multinational MPOX outbreak, as well as the spread of Ebola in Uganda. Quote, we made this world a safer place, end quote, Dr. Walensky said. Quote, I have never been prouder of anything I have done in my professional career. End quote. Heading, a subway killing stuns and divides New Yorkers. Subheading, after a homeless man was killed on the subway, New Yorkers and elected officials are mourning his death and debating how the city should address mental health and public safety. By Emma G. Fitzsimmons and Maria Kramer. Almost as soon as the video of one subway rider ch choking another to death began to ricochet across the internet, the killing came to signify more than the tragic death of one man. For many New Yorkers, the choking of the 30-year-old homeless man, Jordan Neely, was a heinous act of public violence to be swiftly prosecuted and represented a failure by the city to care for people with serious mental illness. Many others who lamented the killing nonetheless saw it as a reaction to fears about public safety in New York and the subway system in particular. And some New Yorkers wrestled with conflicting feelings, their own worries about crime and aggression in the city, and their conviction that the rider had gone too far and should be charged with a crime. Now, as prosecutors continue to investigate the circumstances of Mr. Neely's death, the case has become a political Rorschach test, dividing the city along long, simmering fault lines. Mayor Eric Adams and Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez two of the city's most prominent Democrats, criticized each other's response in an uncommonly tense exchange. The death of another black man in a chokehold, this time at the hands of a civilian, prompted sharp comments from Adrienne Adams, the city council speaker, over racism in the legal system. And in a city where disturbing subway encounters are a fact of life, many wrestled with uncomfortable questions about how they might respond when faced with a person who is both frightening other riders and obviously in crisis. 
the debate over how best to help people with mental illness is taking place in cities across the nation and has been particularly vexing in liberal cities like New York, San Francisco, and Los Angeles, where homelessness and mental illness soared during the pandemic and people in dire need are often in plain sight on park benches and subway trains. These cities have sought out innovative solutions to assist those with mental illness, pouring money into housing programs, street teams, and community centers, and have also cleared subway homeless encampments and weighed harsher tactics. In the wake of Mr. Neely's death, the debate has become especially heated. After Ms. Ocasio-Cortez wrote on Twitter that Mr. Neely had been murdered and another left-leaning official, Brad Lander, the city comptroller, called his attacker a vigilante, Mr. Adams called their comments irresponsible in an interview on CNN on Wednesday night. Mr. Adams, a former transit police officer in his second year as mayor, said on Thursday that he would wait to weigh in until the police and the prosecutors had investigated what happened. Quote, there are many layers to this, end quote, he said at an unrelated news conference. Quote, let the process follow its course, end quote. On the F train in Manhattan on Monday, Mr. Neely, a subway performer and dancer who also had a history of mental illness and erratic behavior, had been yelling at passengers, saying he was hungry and thirsty, but also at one point that he was ready to die, according to one witness. There is no indication that he was violent or that he made any direct threats. But one of the train's riders, a former Marine who has not been identified by officials, approached Mr. Neely, put him in a chokehold, and held him until he became limp. It does not appear that any riders intervened to help Mr. Neely. At least two other riders appeared to help pin him down. Mr. Neely was later pronounced dead at a hospital in Greenwich Village. Law enforcement officials are still investigating the incident and have not yet decided whether to charge the man. Asked what New Yorkers should do in a similar situation, Mr. Adams focused on Mr. Neely's presence on the train and did not discourage people from seeking to restrain someone. Quote, we need to be extremely clear that from day one of this administration, I focused on, we cannot have people with severe emotional illnesses on our subway system, end quote, he said. Every New Yorker has a story of witnessing an outburst or a violent episode on the subway and struggling over how to respond, to confront or flee, to intervene when two riders are at odds, to call for a police officer, or to look away. Many have grown worried about safety on the subway after experiencing violence or reading about it in the news. Others are so accustomed to conflict that they ignore it. On Thursday at the Broadway Lafayette station in Manhattan, where Mr. Neely was removed from the train and taken to a hospital, David Alexander, 45, a superintendent who lives in Manhattan, said that he avoided volatile subway riders and would not risk intervening himself. Quote, if I see something happen, I get up and go to the next car, end quote, he said, adding, quote, you don't get involved, you could end up hurt, you could end up killed, end quote. Rahuma Tarunam, 25, a data analyst who lives in Brooklyn, said that she felt so unsafe on the subway that she carried pepper spray. Though it is unclear if there were police officers nearby or on the train, Ms. Tarunam said that while she deeply regretted Mr. Neely's death, the incident supported her belief that the police need to be doing more. 
quote, because police are not doing their job, that's why the citizens of New York are taking the law into their hands, end quote, she said. Quote, somebody has to do something, end quote. Mr. Adams and Governor Kathy Hochul have vowed to make the subway safer after a series of violent episodes, including stabbings and fatal shoves, that have often included homeless people attacking others. Homeless people are also frequently the victims of violent crimes. Crime rose on the subway during the pandemic, but the subway is less dangerous now than in the 1980s and 1990s, when there were more than two dozen murders in a single year. There were 10 murders on the subway last year, compared with about two murders per year, on average, in the five years before the pandemic. The number of major felony crimes from January to March 2023 was 8% lower than in the same time period in 2022, according to the MTA. Mr. Neely's killing reminded many New Yorkers of the shooting of four black teenagers on a subway train in 1984 by Bernard Goetz, a man who believed he was being robbed and was acquitted of attempted murder. Ms. Ocasio-Cortez, a Democratic Socialist who represents Queens and the Bronx, referenced the mayor's contentious budget cuts to schools, libraries, and social services when she said that Mr. Adams had sunk to a new low in his response to Mr. Neely's death. The mayor's mention of mental health services was, quote, especially rich, end quote, coming from an administration that is, quote, trying to cut the very services that could have helped him, end quote, Ms. Ocasio-Cortez said. Ms. Hochul, for her part, said that there should be consequences for the man who choked Mr. Neely and that, quote, his family deserves justice, end quote. The city's public advocate, Juman Williams, and the Reverend Al Sharpton, the civil rights leader, have called for charges against the man who used the chokehold. Maurice Mitchell, director of the Working Families Party, criticized leaders for refusing to call Mr. Neely's death, quote, what it is, a modern-day public lynching, end quote. Protesters crowded onto the subway platform at the Broadway Lafayette station on Wednesday, chanting, quote, housing not cops, end quote. More protests were planned on Thursday night and Friday, including one in front of the office of Alvin L. Bragg, the Manhattan District Attorney. Charlatan D'Souza, president of Passengers United, an advocacy organization for transit riders, said that comments by politicians inflamed tensions and failed to address the core feeling of most subway riders who just, quote, want to get to their destination safely, end quote. His organization has called for adding 400 social workers to the city's subway system. Politicians need to ride the system, he said, quote, see what's happening, end quote. For New Yorkers who spend time in the subway, the incident felt hauntingly familiar, and many felt torn over how to think about it. Kari Johnson, 23, who works in healthcare and lives in the East Village, said she felt safe on the subway and that Mr. Neely's death was a travesty. Quote, there's no excuse, end quote, she said. Maria Castaño, 64, an interior designer who lives in Brooklyn, said she viewed the man who choked Mr. Neely as a hero and Mr. Neely as the recipient of justice. Quote, I feel sorry for the man, but he was acting threatening, end quote, she said. Kareem Walker, 41, often rode the trains when he was homeless for a year and a half. He encouraged New Yorkers who see a person in crisis on a train to help by calling for emergency services. 
quote, we're all wired to do fight or flight, but approach the situation with as much impartiality as possible, end quote, said Mr. Walker. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Heading, A College President Defends Seeking Money from Jeffrey Epstein. Subheading, Leon Botstein, the president of Bard College, said, quote, Among the very rich is a higher percentage of unpleasant and not very attractive people, end quote. By Vimal Patel. It may seem, at first blush, an unlikely connection. Leon Botstein, the president of Bard, one of the country's most progressive colleges, and Jeffrey Epstein, the disgraced billionaire accused of sexually abusing teenage girls. But reporting from the Wall Street Journal this week showed that Dr. Botstein did not just pursue Mr. Epstein hoping to raise money, he did so repeatedly. He made frequent visits to Mr. Epstein's Upper East Side townhouse, and Mr. Epstein and his entourage hopped by the helicopter to Bard's lush campus in the Hudson Valley. Dr. Botstein said in interviews with the New York Times that the visits were all about funding for Bard, for the school's commitment to social justice, its prisoner education program, its liberal arts mission. Bard calls itself, quote, a private college for the public good, end quote. Quote, people don't understand what this job is, end quote, he said, adding, quote, you cannot pick and choose because among the very rich is a higher percentage of unpleasant and not very attractive people. Capitalism is a rough system, end quote. In defending his pursuit of Mr. Epstein and candidly describing the burden of raising money, Dr. Botstein gave insight into how the need to attract dollars can appear to run headlong into an academic institution's stated values. Mr. Epstein gave prolifically to many charities and universities, including Harvard and MIT, and the Wall Street Journal report showed that his network of contacts was wider than had been thought, including prominent figures like the linguist Noam Chomsky and Lawrence Summers, the former Treasury Secretary and President of Harvard. Dr. Summers sought money for a poetry foundation led by his wife, Elisa New, a Harvard literature professor. Mr. Summers declined to comment. Quote, would we accept money from Jeffrey Epstein today? No. End quote, Dr. Botstein said, describing the former donor as a monster and truly evil man. Quote, we had no idea. The public record had no indication that he was anything more than an ordinary, if you could say such a thing, sex offender who had been convicted and went to jail. Mr. Epstein had been very publicly accused of sexually abusing girls as young as 14. However, he had minimized his legal exposure with high-powered lawyers settlements that silenced complaints, and a plea deal that short-circuited an FBI investigation. Bard College, about 100 miles north of New York City, was having a difficult time after the 2008 financial crisis. By 2016, a financial ratings agency had downgraded Bard's economic outlook, partly because the college had little cash. After Mr. Epstein gave Bard an unsolicited $75,000 gift in 2011, Dr. Botstein said that he hoped for more donations. The Times had previously reported the gift. Quote, a guy sent us money and we followed up, end quote, he said. Quote, it's a simple story, end quote. Over the next four years or so, the Wall Street Journal reported 
There were two dozen or so visits scheduled with Mr. Epstein, mostly at the financier's Manhattan townhouse. Mr. Epstein visited Bard to attend an opera in 2013 and a concert in 2016, planning to bring his young female assistants and arrive by helicopter, according to the newspaper. In an interview, Dr. Botstein said he never witnessed young female assistants around Mr. Epstein, that he was not present when Mr. Epstein's helicopter arrived, and that he did not remember whether he had met Mr. Epstein during those visits, which he said occurred during the summer when classes were not in session. Dr. Botstein said that it was his duty to raise money for the liberal arts institution he leads, in a time when the country is not adequately funding higher education. Bard has a small alumni base, he said, so a large part of his job is persuading wealthy people who are not affiliated with the institution to give money. Quote, that is a humiliating experience to go back over and over and over, end quote, Dr. Botstein said, adding, quote, we're completely at the mercy of the very wealthy, end quote. At first, developing a relationship with Mr. Epstein did not seem far afield for Bard, according to Dr. Botstein. Bard has a program for convicted felons, and Dr. Botstein said that the campus believes in second chances. Quote, that's part of our educational mission, end quote, he said. Quote, you would not criticize a priest for giving communion to a convicted felon, end quote. College presidents must often mingle with unsavory characters to raise money, said Stephen Trachtenberg, a former president of George Washington University. During his tenure, Mr. Trachtenberg said, he considered accepting donations from Scientologists and from the Libyan strongman, Colonel Muammar Gaddafi, but ultimately rejected them. In an interview, Mr. Trachtenberg, now 85, said he never regretted his decision regarding Gaddafi, but still wonders whether he made the right call with the Scientologists, who he said wanted the university to confer an honorary degree on their founder, L. Ron Hubbard, a George Washington alumnus. Quote, I could have put 10 students through college for that kind of money, end quote, he said of the offered sum, and added, quote, you're trying to figure out how to balance the source of your money with the purpose that you're applying the money to, end quote. Mr. Epstein vocariously befriended wealthy executives, celebrities, and politicians. As the accusations against him widened, though, institutions started investigating their ties to him and accounting for his gifts, sometimes redirecting the money. Mr. Epstein killed himself in his Manhattan jail cell in 2019, according to the New York City Medical Examiner. At the time, Mr. Epstein was awaiting trial on federal sex trafficking charges. All colleges and nonprofit groups should ideally have a gift acceptance policy approved by their trustees, addressing how to handle tainted money, said Bill Stansikwitz, director of the fundraising school at Indiana University, referring to gifts from disreputable people. There are no hard and fast rules about which donors are off limits, he said. Rather, it is up to each institution's board of trustees and the community to hold fundraisers accountable. He pointed to an old maxim, quote, if this showed up above the fold in the newspaper, would we be embarrassed? Would we be able to defend this? End quote. Dr. Botstein said Bard does not have any restrictions about which donors it may accept money from, but it does have a rule that gifts in excess of $10,000 require approval by the Board of Trustees. Efforts to reach the chairman of Bard's board, 
James C. Chambers were not immediately successful. Bard is in better financial shape today than it was when it was wooing Mr. Epstein. The college's endowment received a $500 million gift in 2021 from the billionaire George Soros, a donation Dr. Botstein called, quote, the most historic moment, end quote, for the college since its founding in 1860. No such gifts came from Mr. Epstein. Visits with him would always be done in less than half an hour, Dr. Botstein said. And aside from Mr. Epstein's donation of 66 laptop computers, efforts to extract money from him proved unsuccessful. Quote, he enjoyed humiliating and dangling prospects, end quote, Dr. Botstein said, adding, quote, he was sadistic. He absolutely strung me along, end quote. Heading, why nearly all the king's realms want to say goodbye and good riddance. Subheading, whether through a hard break or a soft fade in ties, nations that have kept the British monarch as their head of state are moving towards separation. By Damien Cave. The era of warm, wave-and-smile relations between the British monarchy and its distant realms has come to an end. Many of the former colonies that still formally swear allegiance to King Charles III are accelerating efforts to cut ties with the crown and demanding restitution and a deeper reckoning with the empire that the royal family has come to represent. Jamaica is moving rapidly toward a referendum that would remove King Charles as the nation's head of state, with a reform committee meeting regularly on the verdant grounds where colonial rulers and slave owners once lived. Australia, Papua New Guinea, the Bahamas, and nearly every other country with similar systems of constitutional monarchy have also signaled support for becoming republics completely independent of Britain in the years to come. The chorus of calls for British apologies, reparations, and repatriation of everything from India's Kohunur Diamond to sculptures from Benin and Easter Island has also grown louder, placing the new king in a vexing position. Charles represents nearly 1,000 years of unbroken royal lineage. He also now stands on a volatile fault line between Britain, where much of that history tends to be romanticized, and a group of forthright former colonies demanding that he confront the harsh realities of his country's imperial past. Quote, there is a growing gap between Britain's perception of its own empire and how it's perceived everywhere else, end quote, said William Darlimple, a prominent historian of British India. Quote, and that gap keeps growing, end quote. For countries still constitutionally joined to the crown, Charles's coronation arrived with little fanfare and some cringing discomfort. Those nations are but a remnant. In the wave of decolonization that followed World War II, dozens of independent countries climbed out from under British rule, including India, Pakistan, and Nigeria. During Elizabeth's seven-decade reign, which began in 1952, 17 former colonies left the monarchy's embrace to become republics. In most cases, with a president replacing the queen as head of state, usually in the ceremonial role previously played by the monarch, India, or with stronger executive powers, Kenya. The 14 nations yet to do so stretch from Australia and Papua New Guinea to Canada and Jamaica. In some places that call the new 74-year-old sovereign their king, like the Solomon Islands and Tuvalu, there seems to be little interest in severing royal bonds.
Oaths of allegiance have already been switched from queen to king in the courtrooms of remote capitals where wigs are still worn as if in 1680s London. But for many royal subjects in faraway places, words like His Majesty and Royal, as in the Royal Australian Air Force, roll less easily off the tongue now that Britain is less dominant on the global stage, and now that the monarch is no longer Queen Elizabeth II, who often seemed as irreplaceable as Big Ben. A few governments have already endorsed a soft fade. Quebec passed a law in December that made the oath of allegiance to the king optional for lawmakers. Australia also recently announced that its new $5 note would replace the portrait of Elizabeth not with Charles, but with imagery celebrating the country's indigenous heritage. But for critics of monarchy and empire, these are baby steps when bold leaps are needed. Nova Paris, an Aboriginal Australian Olympian and former politician who is a leader of the Australian Republic movement, which aims to replace the British monarch with an Australian head of state, is one of many calling for a deeper reckoning with the past. English settlers justified seizing Australia by declaring it, quote, terra nullius, end quote, a Latin term for land belonging to no one. It was a slur used to justify disposition, and the impact still lingers. No treaty has ever been signed between the Australian government and Aboriginal nations. Later this year, Australians will vote on a referendum that would give Indigenous Australians an advisory role in policies affecting their communities. And polls show that many hope a vote on becoming a republic will be next, arguing it would tilt the nation more toward its neighbours in Asia and help unify Australia's increasingly multicultural population. Quote, Monarchy is all about entrenched privilege, about rule by kings and queens over and above the Australian people, end quote, Ms. Paris said. Quote, it has no place in democracy, end quote. In Jamaica, the process of separation from Mother England is further along and more imbued with demands for restitution. The Caribbean island was a center of the transatlantic slave trade. Jamaican leaders began calling for reparations from Britain a few years ago, along with many other countries in the region. After Queen Elizabeth died in September, Jamaica's Prime Minister announced that his government would seek to change the Constitution and make Jamaica a republic. In March, a committee of lawmakers and international experts started gathering in Kingston to work out the details. Richard Albert, a committee member and the director of constitutional studies at the University of Texas at Austin, said that at the first meeting, the gravity of the moment clarified the challenges ahead. The group now meets regularly to discuss what question to ask voters in a referendum, what role the Jamaican head of state would play, and what other changes might follow becoming a republic. Quote, there's a sense of national duty and pride, end quote, Mr. Albert said. Quote, it's the idea that the country wants to exercise self-determination to celebrate its cultural heritage and to plant a flag to say, we are an independent sovereign state, end quote. Many Jamaicans have said they hope becoming a republic would lead to broader changes with schools, courts, and other institutions stepping away from quiet respect for British traditions and instead including more candid accounts of crimes committed by colonizers swearing loyalty to the British crown. On the campus of the University of the West Indies on a recent afternoon, many students described Charles as an unknown, distant figure, almost a cardboard cutout from the past. Quote, 
the monarchy is something that should just stay in England, end quote, said Tamoy Campbell, who is studying law. Quote, for us to move forward as a nation, it's important that we break away from those ties to charter our own destiny, our future, and our goals, end quote. Charles has said he does not object to such pursuits. Last June, at a meeting of the Commonwealth, a voluntary association of 54 nations, almost all of which were once under British rule, he declared that any constitutional connection to his family, quote, depends solely on the decision of each member state, end quote. He also noted that the group's roots, quote, go deep into the most painful period of our history, end quote. Last month, in a statement from Buckingham Palace, he signaled support for deeper research into the royal family's connections to slavery through the royal archives. Historians welcomed the move. Quote, that's quite a new step because the archives are private archives, end quote, said Robert Aldrich, an emeritus professor of history at the University of Sydney and co-author of The Ends of Empire, The Last Colonies Revisited. But how much can or will the king actually rectify? Quote, he's constrained, end quote, Professor Aldrich said. Quote, he must say and do only what is approved by the British government, end quote. British laws bar state-owned institutions from returning plundered artifacts. Even an apology for slavery would raise questions about whether the government, the royal family, or businesses owed compensation, and it may be politically impossible. The families of some Kenyan victims of colonial abuse are instead trying to sue the British government in the European Court of Human Rights. Quote, there is still a widespread sense of pride in Britain about an empire that is perceived as being a good and progressive force that brought railways, cricket, and democracy to half the world, end quote, Mr. Darimple said. Quote, and there's very little awareness in Britain of the pile of skulls over which that was rolled, end quote. But there are hints of a shift. Books critical of British rule, such as Empire Land by Sathnam Sanghera, a British journalist born to Indian Punjabi parents, have become bestsellers. Mr. Darimple's book, The Anarchy, The Relentless Rise of East India Company, will soon become a big-budget television series that he has compared to Game of Thrones. For Charles, that means the realms he rules over may all soon become even more engaged with a sharper version of the history his family helped shape. And with that, his reign may be judged more critically than his mother's ever was, by British elites who believe much of their wealth came from their benign civilizing of a grateful world, and by former colonies that bear the scars of imperial violence and want their loot and patrimony returned. Quote, there is friction now in a way that there simply wasn't as recently as five or ten years ago, end quote, Mr. Dalrymple said. Quote, within Britain, there's a whole lot of stuff that we don't know and that we haven't come to terms with, end quote. Heading, the next fear on AI, Hollywood's killer robots become the military's tools. Subheading, U.S. national security officials are warning about the potential for the new technology to upend war, cyber conflict, and, in the most extreme case, the use of nuclear weapons. By David E. Sanger. Washington. When President Biden announced sharp restrictions in October on selling the most advanced computer chips to China, he sold it in part as a way of giving American industry a chance to restore its competitiveness. But at the Pentagon and the National Security Council, there is a second agenda, arms control. 
If the Chinese military cannot get the chips, the theory goes, it may slow its effort to develop weapons driven by artificial intelligence. That would give the White House, and the world, time to figure out some rules for the use of artificial intelligence in everything from sensors, missiles, and cyber weapons, and ultimately to guard against some of the nightmares conjured by Hollywood, autonomous killer robots and computers that lock out their human creators. Now, the fog of fear surrounding the popular ChatGPT chatbot and other generative AI software has made the limiting of chips to Beijing look like just a temporary fix. When Mr. Biden dropped by a meeting in the White House on Thursday of technology executives who are struggling with limiting the risks of the technology, his first comment was, quote, what you are doing has enormous potential and enormous danger, end quote. It was a reflection, his national security aides say, of recent classified briefings about the potential for the new technology to upend war, cyber conflict, and, in the most extreme case, decision-making on employing nuclear weapons. But even as Mr. Biden was issuing his warning, Pentagon officials, speaking at technology forums, said they thought the idea of a six-month pause in developing the next generations of ChatGPT and similar software was a bad idea. The Chinese won't wait, and neither will the Russians. Quote, if we stop, guess who's not going to stop? Potential adversaries overseas, end quote. The Pentagon's chief information officer, John Sherman, said on Wednesday, quote, we've got to keep moving, end quote. His blunt statement underlined the tension felt throughout the defense community today. No one really knows what these new technologies are capable of when it comes to developing and controlling weapons, and they have no idea what kind of arms control regime, if any, might work. The foreboding is vague, but deeply worrisome. Could ChatGPT empower bad actors who previously wouldn't have easy access to destructive technology? Could it speed up confrontations between superpowers, leaving little time for diplomacy and negotiation? Quote, the industry isn't stupid here, and you are already seeing efforts to self-regulate, end quote, said Eric Schmidt, the former Google chairman who served as the inaugural chairman of the Defense Innovation Board from 2016 to 2020. Quote, so there is a series of informal conversations now taking place in the industry, all informal, about what would the rules of AI safety look like, end quote, said Mr. Schmidt, who has written, with former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, a series of articles and books about the potential of artificial intelligence to upend geopolitics. The preliminary effort to put guardrails into the system is clear to anyone who has tested ChatGPT's initial iterations. The bots will not answer questions about how to harm someone with a brew of drugs, for example, or how to blow up a dam or cripple nuclear centrifuges, all operations the United States and other nations have engaged in without the benefit of artificial intelligence tools. But those blacklists of actions will only slow misuse of these systems. Few think they can completely stop such efforts. There is always a hack to get around safety limits, as anyone who has tried to turn off the urgent beeps on an automobile's seatbelt warning system can attest. Though the new software has popularized the issue, it is hardly a new one for the Pentagon. The first rules on developing autonomous weapons were published a decade ago. The Pentagon's Joint Artificial Intelligence Center was established five years ago to explore the use of artificial intelligence in combat. Some weapons already operate on autopilot. 
Patriot missiles, which shoot down missiles or planes entering a protected airspace, have long had an automatic mode. It enables them to fire without human intervention when overwhelmed with incoming targets faster than a human could react. But they are supposed to be supervised by humans who can abort attacks if necessary. The assassination of Mohsen Fagrizada, Iran's top nuclear scientist, was conducted by Israel's Mossad using an autonomous machine gun mounted in a pickup truck that was assisted by artificial intelligence, though there appears to have been a higher degree of remote control. Russia said recently it had begun to manufacture, but has not yet deployed, its undersea Poseidon nuclear torpedo. If it lives up to the Russian hype, the weapon would be able to travel across an ocean autonomously, evading existing missile defenses, to deliver a nuclear weapon days after it is launched. So far, there are no treaties or international agreements that deal with such autonomous weapons. In an era when arms control agreements are being abandoned faster than they are being negotiated, there is little prospect of such an accord. But the kind of challenges raised by ChatGPT and its ilk are different, and in some ways more complicated. In the military, AI-infused systems can speed up the tempo of battlefield decisions to such a degree that they create entirely new risks of accidental strikes, or decisions made on misleading or deliberately false alerts of incoming attacks. Quote, a core problem with AI in the military and in national security is how do you defend against attacks that are faster than human decision-making, end quote, Mr. Schmidt said. Quote, and I think that issue is unresolved. In other words, the missile is coming in so fast that there has to be an automatic response. What happens if it's a false signal? End quote. The Cold War was littered with stories of false warnings. Once because a training tape, meant to be used for practicing nuclear response, was somehow put into the wrong system and set off an alert of a massive incoming Soviet attack. Good judgment led to everyone standing down. Paul Scharr of the Center for a New American Security noted in his 2018 book, Army of None, that there were, quote, at least 13 near-use nuclear incidents from 1962 to 2002, end quote, which, quote, lends credence to the view that near-miss incidents are normal, if terrifying, conditions of nuclear weapons, end quote. For that reason, when tensions between the superpowers were a lot lower than they are today, a series of presidents tried to negotiate building more time into nuclear decision-making on all sides so that no one rushed into conflict. But generative AI threatens to push countries in the other direction, toward faster decision-making. The good news is that the major powers are likely to be careful because they know what the response from an adversary would look like. But so far, there are no agreed-upon rules. Anja Manuel a former State Department official and now a principal in the consulting group Rice, Hadley, Gates, and Manuel, wrote recently that even if China and Russia are not ready for arms control talks about AI, meetings on the topic would result in discussions of what uses of AI are seen as, quote, beyond the pale, end quote. Of course, even the Pentagon will worry about agreeing to many limits. Quote, I fought very hard to get a policy that if you have autonomous elements of weapons, you need a way of turning them off, end quote, said Danny Hillis, a famed computer scientist who is a pioneer in parallel computers that were used for artificial intelligence. Mr. Hillis, who also served on the Defense Innovation Board, said that the pushback came from Pentagon officials who said, quote, 
If we can turn them off, the enemy can turn them off too. So the bigger risks may come from individual actors, terrorists, ransomware groups, or smaller nations with advanced cyber skills, like North Korea, that learn how to clone a smaller, less constricted version of ChatGPT. And they may find that the generative AI software is perfect for speeding up cyber attacks and targeting disinformation. Tom Burt, who leads trust and safety operations at Microsoft, which is speeding ahead with using the new technology to revamp its search engines, said at a recent forum at George Washington University that he thought AI systems would help defenders detect anomalous behavior faster than they would help attackers. Other experts disagree, but he said he feared it would supercharge the spread of targeted disinformation. All of this pretends a whole new era of arms control. Some experts say that since it would be impossible to stop the spread of ChatGPT and similar software, the best hope is to limit the specialty chips and other computing power needed to advance the technology. That will doubtless be one of many different arms control formulas put forward in the next few years, at a time that the major nuclear powers, at least, seem uninterested in negotiating over old weapons, much less new ones. You've been listening to a reading of articles and features from the May 5th, 2023 issue of the New York Times. Your reader has been Jack Harity. Thank you for listening.